0: we are back we sometimes do obituaries in our third segment because we think that you should do obituaries the passing of certain lives are worthy of note but we're so far behind on it we are going to do that on an upcoming web segment except i I do want to note in sadness uh, the passing of james Tegg, who died a couple months back when I was on Facebook, which I'm not on very often, but uh, when I was, I kept being offered Mr. Tegg as a possible friend, since apparently we had a lot of friends in common. If the name doesn't ring a bell, and I'm sure it doesn't for most of you, James Tegg was the third man whose blood was shed that day back in Dealey Plaza on November 22, 1963. Bullets whizzing around in Dallas that day killed President Kennedy, severely injured Governor Conley, and inflicted an admittedly minor but blood-drawing wound on Mr. Tegg. Now, I didn't wind up friending him and talking to him because I thought he was a witness to the assassination. A bullet struck the curb, it blew cement up against his cheek, ripped open a bit of skin, a very, very minor injury. But uh, I thought that was all there was to his story, and I was wrong. Teg has written a book about the assassination based on his first-hand experience. And, uh, I think I'll save talking about this at greater length for some future... Uh, obituary discussion. I do want to note that um, he apparently had a much larger role to play in the rewriting of the Warren Commission and the invention of the single bullet theory than I realized. When the shots rang out and Teg was slightly injured, he told first a deputy sheriff who then told a couple of uh, uh, photographers from the Dallas Morning News where the curb had been struck by A bullet, and indeed, the lead smear was clearly evident on photos taken that next morning. And although Tague did report on his findings to the police and to the FBI, he was ignored. The Warren Commission originally concluded, as had the FBI before it, that there were three shots and three injuries. First, Kennedy was struck, then Conley was struck, then Kennedy was struck. Well, if there's another bullet striking a curb or bullet fragment, then things all of a sudden were a lot more complicated. As late as June of 1964, as they were putting together the Warren Commission report, Tagg was being ignored. When a Dallas reporter named Jim Lair found out about him and interviewed him, he then put a story out in the wire services referring to the missed shot. The FBI first tried to stonewall it and say they didn't know what they were talking about and then later said, well, yeah, can you send over the photographs of the lead smear taken at the time? They eventually went out and cut the curb out of the streets for analysis. It took them eight months to do this, by the way, and apparently got very evasive about the spectrographic analysis obtained off off the lead smear. Turned out no copper was found on the curb, meaning that either this was a lead fragment from a, a larger missile that had broken up or from a different piece of ammunition. At any rate, in the wake of the peace by Jim Lair, uh, James Tegg was finally called before the Warren Commission, gave his testimony, and forced Arlen Specter and others to come up with the single-bullet theory. And it should be emphasized that as late as spring of 1964, absolutely nobody thought that's what had happened. The single-bullet theory was an invention of necessity. And I think that's all we're going to say about that. I think the show really does need some comedy relief. And luckily, I, I believe we have some here in the form of Chinese tourists. As apparently, um, great wealth is being gained by a middle class in China. And the Chinese are becoming, I think, the second largest group of world tourists after Americans. Well, the Chinese tourist is now becoming a major factor. Writing about this new phenomenon in the April 19th Economist. The magazine noted that Wen Zhang is doing what his parents can only dream of, taking a two-week tour of Europe. The 28-year-old from Shanghai has already been to France and the Netherlands. He's now flying from Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam to his final stop, Finland, where he hopes to see the Northern Lights. Mr. Wen is typical of a new wave of Chinese tourists, young, affluent, and traveling independently rather than on the 20 cities in 10 days bus tour like those that brought his predecessors. The magazine notes that such tours still appeal to most Chinese tourists on their first trip further afield than Hong Kong or Macau or Taiwan, but a third are now organizing their own travels, spending more and more, staying longer in each of their destinations. Nearly 1 in 10 international tourists worldwide is now Chinese. And Chinese tourists are spending the most in total, $129 billion last year, ahead of Americans at $86 billion. More than 80% say shopping is vital to their plans, and they're expected to buy more luxury goods next year while abroad than tourists from all other countries combined. But... Uh, it's definitely not all peaches and cream when it comes to Chinese tourism. Dennis Gray, a piece in the uh, April 16th Sacramento Bee titled, Chinese Tourists Antics Raise Hackles in Thailand, tells a curious story. Apparently in 2012, a movie called Lost in Thailand, described as a slapstick comedy, partly shot on a campus in Chiang Mai, Thailand, became China's highest-grossing homegrown movie ever. This has caused thousands of Chinese tourists to clamor aboard student buses at Chiang Mai University, described as a once laid-back campus of one of Thailand's top universities, which is now under a security clampdown. And, of course, it's not against a terrorist threat, but against Chinese tourists. As of that a low point in local tourist relations in Thailand's second-largest largest city was likely a photograph, widely seen on the Internet, of a person purportedly Chinese, defecating in the city's ancient moat. Peace quotes Annette Kunganan, an Irish owner of the long-established Eagle Guesthouse in Chiang Mai, is noting that unfortunately right now the feeling is very anti-Chinese. In order to bring out such strong feelings in Chiang Mai people, it must be really bad. Generally, Chiang Mai people are quite tolerant of foreigners. She and others pointed out that much of the inappropriate behavior applies to tour groups rather than individual travelers who are generally younger, better educated, and more attuned to local customs. This does allow a rather uh, seamless segue, I think, into the outside magazine piece on what has happened to Lonely Planet. In fact, I'm not sure we can do justice to this piece in the three minutes we have left. But to make a long article short, the Lonely Planet founders, Tony and Maureen Wheeler, sold off their Lonely Planet Enterprise, to the BBC some years back for $200 million. After which, its profits reportedly cratered due to the global recession, appreciation of the Australian dollar, and the struggling book industry. At which point, a tobacco billionaire named Brad Kelly stepped in and bought the enterprise, and then turned over the running of his corporation to a 24-year-old photographer and videographer named Daniel Houghton. Not only had Houghton no experience in running a corporation, he had a pretty limited experience in the job market. The magazine noted that staffers at Lonely Planet were predictably bewildered. A veteran Lonely Planet author said, I figured there had to be more to the story than reclusive billionaire hires 24-year-old with no known experience to run the joint, but I think it's as silly and screwed up as it sounds. Uh, I've always been a huge fan of Lonely Planet, and we said some years back in this program, we ought to get Tony Wheeler on the program and talk about it. Well, we were obviously more than a day late and a dollar short. And yes, I have noted that the smart-ass editorial uh, content of the uh, books has been changing in recent years. One editor described the changes that took place after the sale to uh, the BBC, as noting that the, the parties were over and the books had lost even more of their signature spunk. They were editing like every verb that might have a bogeyman underneath it. You couldn't say a town was bad. Now, apparently Daniel Houghton is really big on the new technology and the new apps that are going to change how people travel around and be able to interact with their uh, iPads and the like. But Tony Wheeler himself said, I travel as often with digital guidebooks as, as print ones these days, but they're far from perfect. It's often way faster to find things in a book than on an iPad, and the batteries don't go flat. And the magazine quotes Suki Gear, the former head of the Oakland office, as worrying that Lonely Planet will become, like TripAdvisor, crowdsourced, free, often unreliable. I hope they keep the authors, she said. They're a goldmine. If they go with user-generated content, it's all over. We're going to have to find someone from the travel industry, I think, to talk a little bit more about this, uh, about Lonely Planet in particular and guidebooks in general and the changes taking place in travel while we're at it. But alas, we're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We didn't hear from Elizabeth, so we'll try and bring Elizabeth Orpina, Aggie Editor-in-Chief, on to next week's program to talk about what's going on with the newspaper. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time.